John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me there to John as we spend time there on this Easter morning remembering not only the resurrection but a confession of faith this morning uh, here in John chapter 20. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the fact that your word is sure. Your word is a faithful testimony, uh, that your word is where you have brought your inspiration, leveraging your power to preserve also your word to us today, that it's in your word that your, your spirit works. And so as much as we give our attention, Lord, we are still in need of you. We pray that you would work in the midst of the congregation, that you, as we've gathered, you would gather us to yourself, that you would give us attention perhaps to words that we've heard before, that you would grant faith to believe and faith to walk in what we perhaps have heard before, faith to confess that you are the Lord and God. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in Jesus' name. That you would work in our midst this morning. Amen. The doubt of Thomas. This is where we are this morning in John chapter 20. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? You've perhaps heard that phrase before if you're familiar with this passage, but what does the Bible call him? If you look at the beginning of our passage, now Thomas, one of the twelve, so he's one of the twelve. He's one of the twelve disciples, and he is also called the twin. I don't know the full context of that, but my guess is there's some other person out there that maybe looks a lot like him, so he's one of the twelve, he's the twin, and we call him the doubter. And we call him the doubter for good reason. We're given a testimony in the Word regarding Thomas's doubt. But we might have called him, and many have in history, called him the confessor. Because he's not only the doubter, right? He's Thomas also the one who, who confesses the Christ following the confrontation with Jesus. Perhaps the reason why we tend to call him 
the doubting Thomas is to distance ourselves from him. I mean, isn't it convenient to have Thomas, you know, the doubter over here? We've already got Judas the betrayer. Now, nobody wants to be like him, but nobody really wants to be like Thomas the doubter either. I mean, Thomas is one of those doubting sort of dudes, and then there are the rest of the disciples that are kind of like us, right? I mean, isn't that convenient? But before we get too comfortable with the perception that Thomas is one of those doubting types, and and we're one of those people who believe, I mean, we are here on Easter morning this morning, let's take notice of what it is that we're celebrating together this morning. And I think this is one of the most important things that we could do. Let's remember that we are celebrating that there is an invisible God, right? And he's not just invisible, he's the God who is the God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We we are confessing this morning that the Father sent the Son to take on flesh, to become visible to us, and to be born in a real town on a real day with a real body. We're confessing this morning that that his name is Jesus, and he grew up in a real home. And that a few times along the way, during the course of his upbringing, and then openly when he was around age 30, he began to speak. This Jesus, in the flesh, began to speak of his Father, who is in heaven. Okay? He called 12 disciples to follow him, And he calls them his disciples. So he believes that he has the authority to call a people to follow after his teaching. And he made outrageous claims that he has authority over the worship of the people. And, hear this one, that he has the authority to forgive sins. All right? This is what we're confessing today. He was arrested on a Thursday night. And though the authorities couldn't find him guilty of any crime, they still sentenced him to death to satisfy a a sort of complicated web of political expediency. He was crucified. He was nailed to a post, bled, and suffocated over the course of a number of hours. And then this man, who claims that his father is in heaven, then was buried. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Now, if the story of a God who became a man in order to die one of the most shameful deaths imaginable, if that story isn't wild enough, wait until you hear the next part. All right? Today, we celebrate that on the third day, Sunday, the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. Some of his disciples went to a tomb, And they found that tomb empty, though a stone had been rolled in front of it and it had been put under Roman guard. They found it empty. This God who became a man taking on flesh appeared to his disciples after his death, following his resurrection. It isn't just that the people who love him really missed him a lot and they thought a lot about him and wrote things poetically about him. And they felt his spirit so close that it was like he was never even gone. No, he was raised from the dead. They actually saw him. They actually spoke with him. And they actually, we have a count this morning, they touched him. Let me sum up. 
there's an actual God who became an actual man that actually died and then actually raised. This is the Christian biblical confession. Now, if there's anything in there that you might find hard to believe, if there's anything in there that you've ever doubted, that's because you're a reasonable person. It's astounding. It is outrageous of a claim, but anything less than that claim is not biblical Christianity. But this is the claim of this book, and this is the claim of all who have believed ever since. So Thomas has a hard time believing that a guy that he walked around with for a number of years and then saw executed a few days before is now alive in the next room. I mean, cut the guy some slack, right? (laughs) You know, just, just give him a little bit of space here. Perhaps Thomas isn't the odd one. Pastors on Easter, I know, are supposed to talk about believing, right? Not to stand here and tell you that what you are here claiming to be true is truly astounding. But I don't think that we can truly believe in the gospel until we see the astounding, outrageous nature of what it is that we've been called to believe to face the claims of the gospel face-to-face and do business there. The first of Jesus' statements after he calls Thomas to come and touch him. If you look in the text with me, verse 27, in the later part of the verse, Jesus, he tells Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand and place it in my side. So Jesus is essentially saying, yes, this is outrageous, Uh, I hear your doubt. He says, come close. Let's deal with your doubt. Touch me. And then he says this, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas in verse 25 had boldly claimed, if you look just a few verses before, he says he would never believe. That's his commitment. That's his doctrinal standard. This is his confession. I will never believe. Jesus' teaching isn't just hard because of the command to believe. It's also hard because it's a rebuke of Thomas's own testimony. I will not believe. It's a rebuke of Thomas's unbelief. Believe, Jesus tells Thomas. But Thomas has already said, I will never believe. Now, I know in a gathering like this, particularly on an Easter morning, there are a variety of confessions that have been made. Some of those confessions are, when I say at the beginning of our gathering, welcome in the name of the Lord, he is risen. The confession is quick. He's risen indeed. I've come to to, to confess this. Now, I came out of unbelief. I came out of doubting. But today, I know he is alive. But I know that there's other confessions here this morning as well. Perhaps your confession is, I I do believe, but I do have a lot of questions. I've already told you, it's reasonable. It's reasonable. Now, Jesus and the biblical record have done dealing with those doubts. So do the work. Confront those doubts. But perhaps this morning, you've gone all the way to Thomas's own confession. 
And you've done it again and again. And even in the face of the disciples' testimony over and over again coming to Thomas, he's alive, Thomas. And you've said, I will never believe. Well, let's deal with that. Believe. How do you do that? How do you, how do you believe if you've, you've already made the commitment, I will never believe? Well, the call to belief is not a call to believe simply a set of principles. The call to believe is not a call simply to believe a doctrinal system. It's a call to believe who Jesus actually is. And it's a call, secondly, to believe what he's actually done. Not a system of religious principles, not an abstract set of philosophical reflections. We are confronted with Jesus who he actually is, and what he has actually done. How do we know who he is? How do we know what he's actually done so that we can be confronted with it, deal with doubts, and believe? Well, we have to listen to his words. We have to listen to the Scripture's testimony about him and weigh them and do business with them. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is, according to the biblical record, we don't have time this morning to go through it, but I I commission you, do the work. But you, you see, by the end of our time in John chapter 20, the confession of the Scriptures is remarkably clear for you to do business with. Jesus is the Lord, and Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, what did Jesus do? Now, we have a record of four Gospels. Jesus did the Gospel. He performed the works that stand as the ground of the good news that we proclaim, the Gospel. Jesus, God the Son, was sent from the Father. And I would break it down with four phrases to to help us remember what is this Gospel that is proclaimed in the Word that we continue to proclaim to this day, that Jesus lived the perfect life. God the Son, sent from the Father, lives the perfect life in perfect submission to the will of God in devotion to righteousness. Perfect devotion. He lives the perfect life. Secondly, he gives himself in a sacrificial death. Jesus willingly submitted to the authorities of Rome as they unjustly bowed to the murderous accusations of religious authorities. Everyone's culpable here. So that his death was not for any wrongdoing of his own. He didn't hang on a tree because he was a criminal. He was hanging there as a sacrificial taking of our place. Jesus dies in the place of sinners so that sinners can be forgiven of sin because of the wrath of God that he suffered on that cross. We have a perfect righteous life and we have a sacrificial death. And third, We have a victorious resurrection. Because of Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and eternal power, Jesus takes up his life and resurrection. Jesus overcomes death, and death is defeated. This is the Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday testimony. Death cannot hold the righteous Redeemer, and so he rises bodily, not just philosophically, not just theologically, not just spiritually, bodily, to secure not only his life, but eternal life for all who hope in him, so that we wouldn't just have philosophical life, a better spiritual life. 
but we have the hope of actual, eternal life. And we also have, finally, the promised return. Having risen, he appeared to many disciples. They, they saw him, and they saw him ascend into heaven. And he ascends into heaven after promising them that he will return. From his throne in heaven, he reigns this morning, today, And while he and the Father have sent the Holy Spirit to comfort the church and to remind us of the truth, he will again return to gather his saints to himself and his kingdom forever. This is the gospel proclamation. There's obviously so much more that could be said, but we cannot say less. In light of this gospel, consider Thomas one more time. What was his problem? It isn't, let me suggest, that he didn't believe that someone he respected tremendously and loved dearly died tragically and then rose miraculously. At the end of the day, that's not his biggest problem. If that's all there is to the story, then I'm as much of a doubter as Thomas is. I mean, that's outstanding. That is amazing. That is difficult to do business with. It's an extraordinary claim. But I think what Thomas's problem is that he failed to believe who Jesus is. And because he didn't believe who Jesus is, he found it incredible, not believable, that he could have done what he did. It's because Thomas failed to believe rightly who Jesus is that he failed to understand what Jesus had done. So the barrier to Thomas' faith is that he did not yet trust that Jesus is truly the Lord God. And I would call you this morning to do business with that Claim Not only the claim of the resurrection, but the claim that Jesus is the Lord God. You see, Jesus isn't just some man who is special to Thomas and the other disciples. Jesus is God, the Son, the Messiah. He isn't just a teacher, a religious leader, a revolutionary. He's God in the flesh. Once you understand that Jesus is God, once you come to do business with that, then it believing that Jesus is risen, and that's nothing at all. That's nothing at all. He, he's God. That would be quite natural. If it's, only, it's only if Thomas can come to understand who Jesus is that he can come to understand what it is that he did. It's a ridiculous thing to say that a guy rose from the dead. That's silliness. But if the very nature of grace is mercy, the love of God, that he would sacrifice himself for the lost, then it is a reasonable thing to believe that God would take up his life in victory over sin and death, the great enemy of all of mankind, that he overcomes death out of a great act of grace, mercy, and love for you. That's what we have to do business with. How does Thomas respond? How does he respond to Jesus' command to believe? Well, look at verse 28 with me. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. I think it's striking. He doesn't say, he is risen. The disciples are like, he's risen indeed. We've been saying this for days now. No, he goes right to the heart of his unbelief. He says, my Lord and my God. He confesses who Jesus is. The miracle of Easter isn't merely a dead guy now alive. The miracle of Easter is Jesus, Lord and God, victorious over sin and death. 
You see, the discovery that Jesus is truly Lord and God. He's the Lord and God who has conquered death. That's what Thomas comes to believe on this day. You can't see him then while the call to believe is truly a call to believe not simply that he's alive, but that he is who he says he is. The call, you see, it's to repent of a false view of who Jesus is and to trust that Jesus is himself Lord and God. The pastor Charles Spurgeon writes it this way. I regard this cry of Thomas first as a devout expression of that holy wonder which came upon him when his heart made the great discovery that Jesus was assuredly Lord and God. You see, Jesus has confronted, come face to face with Thomas's unbelief and calls him to believe. And what does Thomas confess? Who Jesus is. Notice the interaction. Thomas declared, I will never believe. Jesus commands him, believe. And Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. So Thomas's response, my Lord and my God, is not only a confession, it's also a repentance. Here's what I'm suggesting to you. Repentance, that's the hard part. Repentance is at the heart of our unbelief, a failure to repent. For Thomas to have confessed that Jesus is Lord and God is not merely a, a statement of belief, it's to repent of a previous belief. It's to repent of what he previously believed. I will never believe, was his previous confession. It's to repent of unbelief and every other thought, every other hope, every other despair that's contrary to Christ, who is Lord and God. It's to repent of those things and take on a new confession. I realize this morning what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you this morning to leave behind one way of viewing the world. One way of thinking about ultimate things and to take up a new belief in Jesus who is Lord and God. Jesus' command is to lay down a sinful lie. And the heart of that sinful lie, as we've often said, is, is on my own, I can live. Thomas has a confidence in himself that he's figured it out. I will never believe, Thomas says, but Jesus commands him, take up the truth, lay down the lie, take up the truth that Jesus alone is hope and salvation. Thomas made his rebellious commitment to unbelief, and Jesus broke through that idolatry with his risen presence and his command to believe. And Thomas repents with the words, my Lord and my God. And then finally, look at verse 29. Here's where he goes. In verse 29, Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed. And what's this focus there? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. You know that this is a blessing that's passed on to us. To this day, we are blessed. We who have based our faith on the testimony of the disciples according to Scripture, even disciples like doubting Thomas. We stand in a line of those who have moved 
from unbelief to belief. And the command of God is not only to believe, but also a command of blessing. Blessed doesn't merely refer to an emotional state of a believer. Blessed refers to the disposition of God toward the one who turns from a previous lie and turns to belief. When Jesus arrives, he arrives, yes, with a rebuke to call to repentance and call to belief. But what are actually his first words in the door? Where's Thomas? I'm going to have him touch right here. Is Is this his first words? Verse 26, at the end of the verse, he says, peace be with you. He arrives with the word of peace and he leaves with the word of blessing. The blessed is the foundation of that peace that Jesus brings to his disciples, including Thomas. We're being asked to do what Thomas did not do. Thomas did not believe on the testimony of the apostles. He demanded to see Jesus in the flesh. Church father John Chrysostom writes, For he believed not the apostles when they said, We have seen the Lord, not so much mistrusting them as deeming the thing to be impossible. What's the nature of your unbelief? More than likely, it falls into one of two categories. I, I do not believe what the Bible says happened. I don't believe that what the Bible says can happen. You see, those are two things. The first problem is a problem of authority. Is the Bible reliable? Is it trustworthy? Are the apostles a group of liars, or are they faithful witnesses to the truth? Can, we can and we should ask those questions. Is the Bible reliable? Do business with that. Have conversations with others who are here. Read books. Read the Bible. And see if it's a reliable testimony. We can and we should ask these questions. But the second is not a problem of authority. It's a problem of faith. I think it was at the root of Thomas's problem. Can God do what this document and these witnesses say actually happened? Can God actually do that? I can't argue against it. There are a number of philosophers and professors even these days that are saying they just can't argue with the biblical record, but their problem is it's overcome their already made commitment to unbelief. For many this morning, this is an essential question. I I do believe our greatest barrier to belief is the fact that the resurrection is real. If that's actually true, then Jesus is Lord and God. And we know what that implies. If Jesus is Lord and God, then I am not. And if Jesus is Lord and God, I have to repent of my unbelief. And I have to believe. And I know that's hard. The greatest barrier to belief is unbelief. If you've been following with me, that actually makes sense. You've heard me say before that sin cries out, In our heart, a shaking at the fist at God, on my own, I can live. I am wise, I am good, and I will pursue my own way. We can't believe in the risen Christ because it says that life is found in him and not in us. If we believe in the risen Christ, it says that he has a right to die for our sin because, well, I'm a sinner. And that, friends, I would suggest is an even harder thing for our hearts to confess 
than that Jesus is alive. And we cannot believe in the risen Christ because it says that he's Lord over my life, and I am not. Listen to the blessing of giving up a belief system that says that I am the Lord of my own life, and I can choose to live in my own way, and on my own, I can live. Jesus blesses the confession that he is Lord. The the God of the universe proclaims blessing over the repentance of unbelief and the confession of faith of him. He's the one who can forgive sin and rebellion and in whom there is life. One of the other apostles, Peter, he wrote a letter. First Peter, in chapter 1, it says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friends, there is blessing for those who believe. Today, this morning, Easter Sunday, heed the command of Jesus. And the command is that you may believe. Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who believe based upon testimony. Then John reveals that he writes this testimony that you might believe. So Jesus says, blessed are those who believe based on the testimony. And then John tells us what he means by that. I'm just going to read it very quickly. The purpose of this book, verse 30 Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I love the love of John. John is a good gospel author because he's a good lover of Jesus and you. John loves us so much that he gives us a testimony that our joy would be as his joy and overflowing. This is always the concern of John the Gospel writer. He desires to give eyewitness testimony so that we would believe what John has seen and heard and touched. And even the day that he saw Thomas touch Jesus and confess. What's John's desire? that you would believe, that we would believe and that we would have life, that we would confess Jesus as Lord and God and so be forgiven of sin and blessed, that the disposition of God himself would be that of blessing and peace upon you this morning. Do not disbelieve, but believe. There are a lot of commandments that we could look up in Scripture There are many instructions that are given to a people who gather to hear the testimony of the Christ. But this morning, the most important command you could hear is do not disbelieve, but believe. Confess that you are a sinner, that you have rebelled against the right rule of God in your life, and that up until now you have not believed. And then confess this morning that Jesus is Lord And God, that because of his sacrificial death and his miraculous resurrection, your sins may actually be forgiven. You see, that's incredible. That's outrageous. Beyond comprehension that a God would forgive my sin. And that if you walk in the belief that Jesus is Lord and God, you have life 
in his name. One last word. John, that gospel writer, he also wrote a letter, kind of like Peter. In 1 John, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. You may know, church, that you have eternal life. Heavenly Father, what a blessing. When you say blessed are those who believe on account of the testimony that we have then recorded of the apostles in this scripture that we can do business with, that we can confront our doubts with, that we can consider and converse over, but ultimately confess that there is blessing of eternal life for all who believe. But this is outrageous. This is astounding to us that the God, the holy, righteous God of the universe would relate to us with mercy and love. We thank you, God. We thank you for that. And even as your command, your call has gone out this morning, that the one here this morning who does not believe, you are so bold as to command belief. We pray that that miracle would take place this morning. And we pray that as that confession is made, they would, this one would join with all here in a new joy, a new life, an eternal life that is found in the Christ alone. Lord, we hope in you for this miraculous rebirth, this gift, this blessing this morning. And we pray that you would be praised. You would be worshiped as we turn from darkness to light, that we would enjoy you. And in our enjoying you, you would be exalted, praised this morning. Thank you, Lord. You are risen. Indeed, it is true. We give thanks for all of it means to us this morning. As we pray these things in Jesus, the resurrected Christ's name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.